Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Is your work a nuisance that just keeps you from living your dream? Are guys at the highest level deeply insecure? And when does being bold turn into being reckless? David Perel gave up his dream of being a pro racing driver and became a tech startup founder. But dreams die hard. In this amazing story, David recalls his bold and sometimes reckless choices to go against the odds so he could race at the highest level. And somehow, he nearly starved while driving a Ferrari. Welcome to The New Man. Today we're talking with David Perel. He's a professional racing driver for the Rinaldi Racing Team in the Blancpain GT Series. I want to make sure I say that right. Yeah? That's correct. Yeah, which means he drives a Ferrari very quickly around the track. So uh, you're also a driving coach and uh, somebody I've been following now for a while and, and I'm really excited to talk to you. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Trip. Much appreciated. Looking forward to our chat. You know, to set a little context, you know, even if you're, you're somebody that's listening and you don't really follow motorsport, um, your story, David, is is really inspiring, and I think it's stuff that we can we can all relate to. We 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 have dreams. Maybe the dreams took a gut punch, and we thought they were over. And then um, I want to. I just want to explore that with you today, of like what that process was like, and then how you came back. And there were a lot of odds against you. Um, and I just want to learn about this process too. So, you know, if, if, if you're out there and you're listening and there's this kind of like, gosh, is, is, is the dream over? Is this thing that I really care about over, you know, where do we find that gear in us? That's the, whatever it takes gear, that, that dedication, um, and, and to really go after something that we care about. So I, I, I get that when I read your stuff or I watch your videos and it's like, yeah, they just get fired up. And so I want to share that with the listeners today. Um, so you started out in, in, Motorsport as a kid, right? Doing doing the carts. Is that right? Uh, pretty much. Uh, late. I started what we consider late. Um, towards the end of uh, 14 years old, I discovered karting through a family friend. And my brother and I got into the process of begging my father to buy us a cart. And he didn't want to spend the money. I mean, karting is not, it's not cheap. And he didn't want us to get into motorsport because he knew that... It's a really tough sport. It's dominated by how much money you can find or have. Um, and it's not necessarily a meritocracy. So he encouraged us not to do it. But eventually we pushed hard enough. He bought us a secondhand cart that I used um, primarily. Um, and I did a year in that cart or two years. I can't remember. Really at that point, the the bug had bitten me 110%. I knew exactly what I wanted to be for the rest of my life, which was a professional racing driver. I did karting from the age of 15 to the age of 23. And I mean, looking back now with perfect hindsight, I should have got on a plane by myself with a bag when I was 21 and moved from South Africa to Europe. But I didn't have the guts to do it. Hmm. And, and you know, it's, it was kind of also was discouraged. You know, my, my dad kept saying, you know, he'll help me. He'll, he'll help my brother and I with racing until we 18. He'll like give us some money for the entry and the tires, which was about $200 before race. 
Um, but after we're 18, that's it. Um, you have to get a job, you have to study, you have to do something, you have to start a life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't really willing to do that, but I didn't have the, I didn't have the facilities to, to move either. So, but around the age of 23, I was, I was forced to stop because I, I just had run out of money. Um, I mean, I was peaking in terms of my results and my abilities because when I was 23 years old, I went to the, the karting world finals and I finished sixth. I led the race at one point, the final. Um, so I was definitely, I, I had a very, very good motorsport coach and in some ways a life mental coach. He, he showed, he sort of took me on because, um, my dad wouldn't come to the races with us. So he, he, we didn't have that sort of adult supervision. So my brother and I would always find someone along the way, um, who would, who would sort of, we'd force ourselves under their wing, if you will. Huh. And, uh, the guy that I found Claudio Piazza Musso, he was, he was brilliant. He was a world karting champion himself. And he taught me about the mentality of racing and the dedication that was required. And, and everything I learned during that period is kind of, um, it's, it's how I approach life. So take me to when you're 23 and you run out of money and what goes through your head is like, well, that's it. I, I, am I never going to drive again? Or were you bargaining with yourself? Like I'll find another way. What, what was happening for you? Um, at the end of 20, age of 23, uh, that was when that was the end of the year that I did the Rotax world finals. Um, and then there was this opportunity to move up into big circuit racing. We call it and, uh, single seaters formula racing, which is, they look like formula one cars or Indy cars, but small, they're like juniors. Um, I didn't have the money to, to make that step. And the team let me in, uh, to, to race with them. And I did three races with them, but those three races were on the promise that I could find some sponsorship. Um, and at that point I was proving to be very quick in the car and, uh, I was racing against guys who had much more big circuit experience than myself. And I was, I was beating them. Um, but the money never arrived. So the team kicked me out. I just want to underline that because I don't think that if we're watching that on, you know, for watching this on TV, we don't get that you have to pay to play. When we watch other yes. sports, usually it's the the best guys are on the team, and that's what the we're best, watching. Yes. And so, but that's not the case here. The best guys aren't on the team; it's the ones who can who are good, but then they also Audit. can can bring the money in. Yeah, so that's pretty much what happens. Is as you're climbing the ladder to become a professional, um, the teams aren't necessarily going to invest in you, proving to them that you're good enough. You know, they already have a queue of drivers who are good enough that they could cherry pick from. So it's a buyer's market. And, um, basically, so what the the premise is this, it's like, why should I use you, Mr. Talent, when you have no experience, you have as much talent as the next guy. Um, but, but no experience. So if you have no experience, you, you're a risk to my team. You're going to cost me money with crashes and your learning experience is going to cost me money basically. So, if you want to be a part of my team, you have to pay for that experience. And, um, that's just how racing goes. Yeah. Eventually, once you get to a certain level, uh, where you are a paid professional and you're good enough, then it kind of starts to turn the other way where they, they're only going to pay the best guys to be with them in the first place. Mm-hmm. But to break through that barrier, to go from an amateur to a professional is, it's a very thick wall, a very steep mountain. Um, and you need, you need you need to a lot of uh, discipline and a, a thick skin to cope with with the challenges that come with that. Yeah, because you also have to have a game of I, I, it's not just how well I do out on the track and I'm I'm perfecting that and and really building up my skill. I have to go out and raise money. I got to find some way to fund yes this this way of uh, showing up and Correct. being able to play. So my solution to getting money was to work for it. Um, so the day I left school. I learned how to code. That was a big thing. My dad taught me how to code. Um, and then a year later, my brother came in. He also got taught how to code. He was better at coding than me, but I was better at designing. So we formed a little web company. It was very much a mom, mom and pop website building agency, just my brother and myself. Um, and we did that and that paid for our racing bills 
because we were both racing at that time. Eventually, my brother stopped. He was much wiser than me. <laughs> I, I continued. So, were you and were you still in the back of your head like I'm going to make this work, or was it just like, oh well, I found a happy medium. I, I'm making, I'm paying my bills, but now I'm I'm able to race a little bit. Oh no, it was every every hour I spent at my desk or dollar I made was only with the uh, was only to go racing. Okay. Um, so from that age of 18 to 23, those five years, um, I was still obsessed about racing. I had 95% of my attention was on racing and the other 5% was this nuisance of this Monday to Friday thing that I had to do to go racing. And yeah. um, that was a problem because uh, we could have maybe been successful sooner financially. With the business? Um, but Correct. But I didn't put the necessary attention into it. Okay. Um, so that's why how I was paying for the karting, but uh, it was getting much more expensive. And to move to to the big circuit stuff, the single seaters, um, is takes a ten x step in finances, and I didn't have that. What kind of numbers are we talking about? Just so that the listener can appreciate what you're talking about here. Um, at the time, I was able to go karting for less than ten thousand dollars a year, but I was competing against guys who were spending fifty to eighty thousand. Okay. Um, uh, and then to go from big to big circuit, you're looking at, especially these days, so let's just talk in these days numbers, you're looking at 150 to 500,000 US. Just to race, um, just to go out there and, yes. and race, not even to for the for a chance to grab a lot of cash at it, it's just to get out there and be on the track. Just, just to be on the track, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if you're looking at, um, as this is as a career, as a return on investment, uh, it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible idea. <laughs> I was what? 20, I was just about to turn 24. So I was still 23. Um, and I decided I'd just been kicked out the team as well. This, this, the single seater team, formula team. And I decided that's it. I've had enough. Um, I need to stop racing. I need to let go of the stream and I need to take the dedication and focus that I had in motorsports and put it into this company that I have with my brother. So that's what that's what I did. I moved into the offices that we worked in. You and I there. moved a couch. Yeah, I moved a couch in front of my desk. Um, and my brother and I, okay, my brother was wise enough to to rent an apartment, but <laughs> he, yeah, he just made a lot of better life choices than me. Trust me. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would sleep on the couch. Um, there was a shower in the office. I'd sleep in the couch. I'd use the shower in the office. Um, my brother would wake me up in the morning. Um, then I'd work till midnight, 2 a.m., 4 a.m. Didn't matter. I would just work, 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 work. Um, and had no friends for that period. It was quite, I mean, we were very successful in our business, but it was personally like tough, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was, I was okay with it. And I woke up every day thinking... Why am I not a racing driver? Why am I not a racing driver? Oh, well, I just got to keep working harder until I am a racing driver. And were you doing anything at the time to, or were you still driving at all? Were you doing anything to maintain oh. your, your skills and, and growth? Uh, so at that period, when I stopped the racing, I stopped it entirely. I, I didn't go to racetracks. I stopped watching racing on TV. Um, I didn't go near my simulator. In fact, I sold the, the steering wheel and pedals, the PlayStation, Gran Turismo. I sold it all Wow! because it would have... It, it's a, it is a drug. Um, if you're obsessed with this, with your, uh, what do you call it? Vocation, your ambition, your passion, it becomes a drug and it's very difficult to get off it. So I had to, I had to go cold Turkey to forget about it. And, um, I did, I did for two years. I did. I, I just did not go near a racetrack and I would, I stopped visiting my favorite websites like, uh, auto sports and, Formula One and all those things. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge Formula One fan. Um, and yeah, so I, I would save money, save money. And was there a depression there? I mean, this is a death, right? This is in a lot of ways, this is a real grieving. Like, I, you know, this, I was so obsessed. Yeah. This was the dream. And now I'm <laughs> like, luckily, I would say that, you know, maybe for like a week, I was really upset. But my dad, he's really, uh, he's, he's great. He's awesome. And he just said to me, in my dad's way. He's like, just get over it. You know, life goes on. <laughs> just press and that, that button. that was it. Like, get over it. it huh? was, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was like, okay, today's a new day and tough luck, son. You mm. know, um, make, start making a living for heaven's sake. Okay. 
So then how did, yeah. uh, how did, how did motorsport start to ease its way back in your life? If you, if you went cold Turkey yeah. and you're working 27 hours a day, then, then how did, yeah. how did it come back in? Well, it was always lingering. I would just, I put it in a box, you know, mm. and, uh, I put it in a box, put it in a box. I, I would wake up every morning. I would stare at the ceiling and say, I can't believe I'm doing this and I'm not at a racetrack. Like it didn't make sense. Um, but then I'd bury myself in my work and I started to love my work a lot. Um, but then I'd, I'd made enough money uh, personally that I, just by the way, I'm, I'm not, I was by no stretch a millionaire in dollars or anything like that. I just, I could live a comfortable life at that point, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I read about this race in South Africa, uh, a karting race where if you won the karting race, you could go to the world finals. So it was like a one-off event. And in 2007, I'd led those world finals and I didn't win it. I made a small mistake, which cost me dearly. And this was 2012 now. So five, five years later, um, I read about this race and I said, you know what? I have the money to dedicate an entire season's budget just for this one race. So the money I would use, used to spend just under $10,000 uh, on an entire season of karting, I wanted to dedicate that to a, one singular race. I would get fit again. I would do a lot of testing at this particular racetrack. I would, I'd pay a good team to support me. And let's just see for fun uh, if I can do this. Um, and my brother said, oh, this, is, this would be a good idea for you to take a couple of weeks off and just go have some fun with what you used to love doing and see how it goes. And in South Africa, our karting scene is very, very uh, competitive. Between the years 2000 and 2007, we had six world champions in karting. So to get to the world championships, you had to beat the world champions <laughs> wow. as it was, you know. So we had a very high level. And um, I knew that if I did this one-off event, it was called the African Open. If I did this African Open, I'd be measuring myself against you're pretty much the best in the world in, in that category. Um, and I love competing. I'm a very competitive guy. Uh, so, you know, that tickled my fancy, if you will. And so I went to this race. Um, I was very competitive the whole week. And for whatever reason, there was a technical failure in my cart. So I had to start the final last, which was, I think, I think there was 32 carts in the grid. So I started 32nd and I came around to finish second. Hold on. This is like some karate kid movie. Thing. <laughs> you come out of nowhere from being a workaholic. You start at the back of the grid and you end up second against the best in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Almost. Yeah. And I had a, I had a non-branded suit. I was a black racing suit, white helmet, which is like, if you're wearing a white helmet at a karting race, by the way, you really are considered like a super amateur. It's just like, it's not the thing you do. <laughs> but so it was, it was awesome. And, um, I was like, okay, I still got it. I still got it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again, Mike, I'd, I'd, at that point, you could say I'd found a balance because now I was like, oh, every year is this African Open. So I can do this once a year to to get the, the drug out my system of racing. And then I can go back to my business for the other 11 months of the year. So that, that sounds perfect to me. Um, and I did it again the following year. That's what addicts say, by the way. I just want to say they just, exactly. I'll just have this one drink once a year. Just a taste. <laughs> just a taste. So I had my taste in 2012. In 2013, I expanded my program. Um, I did a couple of national events and did quite well. I think I finished, I finished third in the nation and I finished second again in the African Open. Um, and then in 2014, I'd actually, I'd had enough really. I was like, okay, David, you're good enough. You've proven to yourself. I, I mean, at the end of the day, I was just, I was insecure. I must've been insecure about my ability, but I'd proven to myself that I had the ability and enough was enough. And I, in 2014, after two years of doing this karting thing, I gave away my racing helmets, which is a big deal um, to any racing driver because your helmet is your only way of expressing yourself. So by then my helmet wasn't white anymore, by the way. Um, but I took all my racing helmets that I collected and I gave them to people who had positively affected me during my racing endeavors. And that was it. And you, now you're done. Okay. Now I'm really, really done. Right. And I felt cleansed. I felt free. <laughs> 
from well, that, my addiction. <laughs> well, that's interesting because right, that 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 needing to prove usually drives us, but only to a point, right? Nickel, it gets yeah. us to a, a point, but that's kind of an immature ambition. It does it doesn't really last like beyond the age of twenty seven or so, at least emotionally, you know, uh, emotional maturity wise. Uh, so it sounds like you you made a clear you crossed that threshold. Like racing isn't re- necessarily about me needing to prove myself anymore. Is that what what it was for you? Yes. So I had this, I had a closure. I had, I did have closure about my ability because I don't know why. I mean, well, I'm, I'm, look, every world champion that you see in the world who's walking around confidently, and I mean in any sport, is actually very insecure deep down. They're all seeking affirmation. They're seeking confirmation about their God-given talent to do well, to excel, to dominate. And Every race is a referendum. Am I good enough? Am I, am I worthy? Am I worthy? And, and I'm telling you now, every world champion, multiple world champions probably suffer from it the most because they're not able to just let go. You know, they carry this, this like somewhere deep down is this level of self-doubt that they have to keep proving to themselves. This is my belief, by the way. It's like it's a theory. <laughs> Um, and that's why they keep pushing. They keep going to the next level. They keep wanting to prove that they're the, they're the best of their generation, the best of all time, the best of any time, etc. I don't think it's – well, you know, it's not – it's nothing to do even with sports because I see this in guys that I coach in the startup and business and and yes. they'll they'll kind of hit an edge and it's like, well, what's wrong? And it's it's nothing wrong with the company. It's them. It's it's what – you know, they can't their, – their, their self-worth is fused to whatever's – happening yeah. there and, and they've got to find that next thing yeah i've come to learn over many years that i'm not the most talented that natural gift of feeling where a car is and positioning it and the timing and everything um and if you see me try to catch a ball it's it's hilarious so <laughs> <laughs> but there's many elements to being fast on a racetrack outside of the talent and i was good at those things so i i found a way to make up for the missing let's just say five percent compared to the best in the world. And my preparation in 2007 for the world finals was an example of that. I would, I found the the track on Google Maps, I printed it out, I traced it using a vector program, uh, Illustrator. I printed that out again uh, and stuck the track around my house. Um, I arrived at the world finals two days before everyone else, walked the track three times a day, I just did everything I could around it so that when I hit the track, I was more prepared and I didn't necessarily have to rely as much on my, my talent as I did on my knowledge. Mm. So I upped my knowledge game and that's kind of helped me in 2014 when I said, okay, I've proven to myself where my ability is that I could just let go. Um, but I still, I still loved racing. I still loved the atmosphere. I loved the vibe. I love the smell. I love mm-hmm. the sound. Um, so Sort of two months after I'd given away my helmets, I was watching Lamar 24 Hour, and this is where it gets messy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I always, every year I watch the Lamar 24 Hour on my own, or with, with friends or on my own, but I'm the only one who stays up the whole race. Oh. And it was like around 1 a.m., and I'm watching on an iPad, and uh, I see a driver in the pit lane with his helmet on, and he's basically waiting. It's time for his stint. It's time for the night stint, which I've come to learn is the best thing in the world. And um, so the car comes down the pit lane and he's about to jump in the car. And I sat there on my own. I'm like, wow, like what must it be like to to know that you're about to get in to a racing car and you're going to drive off into the night at over 300 Ks an hour or what is that? 200 miles per hour. And, and just push yourself to the limit at night, you know. Yeah. In, in like this weird silence and it's like, I need to know what that feels like. Mm. <laughs> so, I said, so how do I do this? Okay. So this is a money game. Okay. I've already, I learned that at the age of 23. I proved it with these two years of karting. I have some money left, not a, not a lot, but I have something left mm-hmm. from this, let's call it this racing slash fund. Um, Let's give it a shot. So, so where do I start with this? I know no one in Europe. I know nothing. I know no one. You have zero connections to this to this game of getting to the Le Mans. Okay. Absolutely zero. I have no connections to racing outside of the local karting that I've done. Um, but 
prior to this this day and prior to owning and running a business, I wouldn't, I would have given up right there and there, right? I, I had no practice of how to approach this from a business type manner. I would just be a depressed sportsman who would um, complain about my lack of opportunity. So thankfully, like this is where my spending some time in some years in the business world really helped me proceed in my career, which I would have not been able to do prior. So it, it was it was the answer was staring me in the face for so many years. I literally looked at the TV. I looked every like hour or so. They show a summary of the race. They show the positions of all the cars and the drivers and the teams. So I literally, I started to write down all the teams on the TV, the names of the teams, all 60, put into a spreadsheet. And on, on the, the following Monday, I started to Google and phone cold call them and email them um, asking, you know, can I race with you next year? And I'm not, I swear to God, this is a hundred percent true story. 59 said no, all 59, except for one, the final one that I emailed agreed to a Skype call. I'm not joking. I can't even believe you got a response. Like just that you even got 59 responses is amazing. Much less that you got a positive response. <laughs> exactly. So and and look, the, the guy who who I got on the call with, um, his name was Daniel. He was a team owner. He said, "Look, mate, there's no space in my team unless you have." Uh, and I'm not I'm not joking. The cost of just racing in Lamar, okay, just that one event for one driver out of the three that is in a car, is three hundred to four hundred thousand U.S. dollars. Okay, let's slow this down. So if you're listening right now and you want to have a stint in a Lamar car, yes. You're paying three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars to be to race in their car. You pay them to race in their car. Okay, correct. If you if if you're not the professional, because the, the car has a mixture of of drivers in the car, it has usually two amateurs and one professional. The professional is being paid, so he's not bringing any operational money to the to the car. So it's up to the other two amateur drivers to fill to to pay for that car. Mm-hmm. Um, and the demand for for the Lamar a Lamar seat is so high that the teams are charging over a million dollars to put that car on the grid. So between the two amateur drivers, they have to find a million dollars. So Daniel said that to me. He's like, do you have a million dollars? I was like, Whew, not really. <laughs> Let me go look. <laughs> He's like, okay, well then you need a, a strong CV. You know, you need a strong history of results. Do you have that? Nope, never raced in Europe before. He's like, well, my friend, then you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so that was... <clears throat> to hear that the reality of what is required was was a shocker. Was that like okay, um, I'm done. I mean, did you just like okay, well that's well, it. I tried and 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 you quit or what happened? Yeah, I was pr- I was pretty much at that point I was done because I just didn't know. It just seemed like such a tall barrier to get over. Um, but my brother, he's he's like my number one motivator, but like in a strange way. He he also tells me to get over it, you know. Mm-hmm. He's not like, yeah, David, you can do it. He's like, more like, don't waste your talent, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, search for like, I don't know, a cheaper series. You don't have to do Lamar. What's what's the next best thing to Lamar? You can race, try to race a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or something uh, around your favorite racetrack. So I made a list of my favorite racetracks um, and then started to Google teams that competed in national championships. Let's just say, for example, the German GT3 championship or the Italian GT championship. Um, and through all, all of the searching, I finally, I finally found a connection to a South African who knew all these teams. His name was Alan, Alan McDonald. And he said, well, David, um, if there's any opportunities, I'll give you a call. And I didn't even know what the budget was or anything, but I had about how much I had about $20,000 left in this racing slash fund that I'd saved over the five, six years, seven years of running my business. Um, and a month later he called me, he said, look, there's this race in Italian GT and it's going to cost you $20,000. Uh, do you want to do it? And I said, yes, immediately. It was like two weeks. I had, no, I had 10 days to organize a visa. And just bear in mind, um, from about 2013 to, to this point, the middle of 2014, I was playing, I was back on my simulator, cheap one, PlayStation, Gran Turismo, but I was playing Gran Turismo again. 
I'd been turning some laps, albeit all virtual, mm-hmm. and I'd never driven such a heavy car around a technical racetrack that I'd went to. I raced in a track in Italy called Imola. It's the track that Ayrton Senna lost his life at. Mm-hmm. It's legendary, but it was on my list of tracks I wanted to experience. Um, so I arrived at this race, um, turned out I needed a $2,000 helmet and I didn't have that money. <laughs> so I borrowed the helmet of the team owner, which is, it's terrible guys. It's, it's terrible. It's like wearing someone else's underwear. <laughs> <laughs> it's just terrible. <laughs> um, and I did the race and I had this really old engineer, like old guy. Um, and this engineer had worked with F1 drivers, Lamar drivers, Formula 3000 drivers, GP2 drivers. In fact, he had his own GP2 team, which is one level below Formula 1. He'd worked with the best drivers in the world. And I don't even know why he was there. Oh, he was there because he was doing this guy, Alan, who who put me in the car. Uh, he was doing him a favor. So this was a very lucky break for me, by the way. Big time. Um, okay, so I almost finished on the podium in this race in Italy. With zero experience, zero testing. The first time I drove the car was in free practice one. I was terrified. Car felt so heavy. It was so fast. I had no idea how to manage the braking. But by the end of the weekend, we were fighting for a podium, um, which is cool. It's cool. Yeah. But, okay, by now, I'd spent all my money, okay? The money was gone. But I ticked the box of this driving a GT car at a legendary racetrack. Yes, it wasn't Lamar, but... It felt, it felt cool, right? Yeah. Once again, Dave, go back home, continue with your life. Okay, fine. I'm all done now. Now I'm done. <laughs> now I'm done. Yeah, now I'm done. So then at the dinner, the final dinner with my engineer, his name was Gianfranco. He said, look, Dave, you've proved to me today that you could probably turn this into a profession. And that was a big mistake. You know, that was like getting a shot of heroin in my arm. <laughs> and he said, if any opportunities come up to do more races, I'll give you a shout. And I said, yeah, I've heard that a million times in my life. It's not going to happen. Anyway, go back home. Uh, about 10 days later, Alan calls me. He says, look, Gianfranco just gave me a shout. There's this opportunity to race a Lamborghini in the Lamborghini Super Trofeo World Finals. And the race is going to be in Malaysia. It's in 10 days time. You need to find... Uh, $15,000. So I'm like, I don't have $15,000, but I found it. I, through friends, through, um, he wasn't really a friend. He was more like someone who could help me out. And then I took a small little, a small loan, um, from a bank. I, I found the money, made it work. Went to this race. I was with the best super trofeo team on the grid. It turned out we were leading the race and then I had brake failure legit brake failure, crashed the car big time at over 200 kilometers per hour. I don't know what that is in miles. What is that? 130 miles per hour? Um, Somewhere there and broke my leg. Yeah. And the team was so pissed with me. They said, you're an amateur. You crashed the car. It was your fault. Go back home. We never want to hear from you again. Wow. Um, I didn't know my leg was broken. It was just very sore. But it felt more like a bruise, but I couldn't, I could still walk in it slightly. So I, I took the flight back from Malaysia with, I mean, I limped around the airport. And by the time I got back to South Africa, I was in so much pain. Went to, I went to the doctor. Oh, you've got a broken leg. So, well, I'm, I'm also curious just about that, like that, that part of us that's always stretching, like, I'm not one of those guys. I don't deserve to be here. And then you have an yeah. accident like that. And you, you hear that you actually hear it instead of the validation of being the best, you get, you get. Yeah, yeah the validation that you don't belong. Was that crushing? It was crushing. They told me. Uh, so I had the crash in the morning and I had to stand there the whole day watching the rebuild the car. Then they had another race the next day because they had multiple cars entered in the event. So I stuck around. Um, but I was persona non grata. Like they were just not interested in seeing me anywhere near them. And they wouldn't. What was really tough was uh, we have cameras in the car, which uh, onboard cameras. And my camera, coincidentally, this is, this is not a lie, it, it had like, it wasn't tight enough. So it kind of fell down to the point where you could see my feet in the car. And you could see that when I pressed the brakes, I, I had, the, the pedal went directly to the floor. 
So my foot, it was like I was pressing air. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no resistance on the pedal. So then I just went off the track and crashed. The thing is, though, the team refused to look at the onboard footage because they had convinced themselves effectively that it was my fault that I crashed the car. And you were never redeemed? Nobody ever? Well, this is okay. So, so anyway, pretty devastating, really dark moments. All my confidence of being a good racing driver down the drain. <laughs> sure. Uh, I went home. And um, heard nothing from the team. That was in uh, November that I had the crash. And then all the way until February, I was just carrying on with my life. And I'd actually sold a share of my business to someone. Um, So if you could say, I kind of recouped some money from my racing. Uh, And then this team, which told me that I was never good enough to be a racing driver, they called me and they said, oh, we did some analysis we realized that the brakes did fail because it happened to someone else a month later. So you're not as bad as we thought. Do you want to race with us for a full season in the Italian GT? You need to find a hundred thousand US dollars. <laughs> so you're not as bad. You're welcome back. Yeah. And we, and not only just for a race, we want you for the whole season. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you have to pay a hundred thousand yeah. dollars for the season, but bring us the money, right? Yeah. So I was like, okay, and now comes my first big reckless move. I signed this contract for $100,000, only having about thirty. dollars That $30,000 was the money I'd made from selling a portion of my business. I wasn't going to make that money again with that magic trick, right? Right. So I signed this contract. Oh, my gosh. And we, yeah. Now you're on the hook for seventy grand. <laughs> yes. And But now also I'm... Excuse me, I'm balls deep now. You know, this is it. I've now made the choice in my life that I'm moving away from being a technical founder to being a racing driver. I'm now pursuing, I'm back on the boat to pursuing my dream to becoming a professional racing driver. I'm now putting all my cards on the table. Um, and we just start this winning streak and we start winning races. I won the first race in my first race in Italian GT, got a pole position. I uh, went to the next race, won that one, uh, and there's uh, seven or eight races in the season. And by race three, I'd spent my last dollar. I told the team. They said, look, we knew this anyway. <laughs> it happens all the time. <laughs> so, so we'll start deferring the invoices. And we'll start stretching them out, start playing some some poker with, them, with the maths here. And then I just started selling everything I had. So I started selling my car. I took another loan. Um, I did a like a GoFundMe, which I managed to raise ten thousand dollars of that. Um, what else? I did a whole bunch of magic tricks, and I got to the end of the season and had paid all my bills. Um, I'd won more races than anyone during that season, more pole positions, but I knew I knew that I hadn't done enough yet to become a professional. This is only my first year as an amateur racer. I hadn't done a proper endurance race. I hadn't raced at night. Um, I'd only raced in Italy, except for one race in Belgium. Um, so I'm still a nobody. I'm mm-hmm. very much a nobody. Um, and then the following season, the team, the same team, Bonaldi Motorsports, they wanted me to race with them again um, in another Lamborghini championship, but they needed two hundred thousand dollars. And this I was is, like, this oh. is a drug racket. Like this is. <laughs> It's it's a total it's a pyramid scheme extortion <laughs> ring, it's a Ponzi scheme. I don't know. You, you give it all the names. It's all of those things. Okay. Um, and I I didn't have two hundred. I I just scraped through finding a hundred thousand dollars. I'd sold everything I had. I hadn't. I promise you. I, by the time I'd eventually moved to London, which was a year after, I literally I came here with one small bag. I came here with one small bag of clothes. And, and the apartment that I moved into had a bed. It had no blinds, no curtains. I had no couch. I had nothing, nothing, nothing. I was eating on the floor for like two, three weeks before I could afford to buy my first table. <laughs> I swear my life. Wow. <laughs> but anyway, 2016 came and credit to my he, – he, by that point, he became my manager, if you will, um, Alan. He, he heard about this, this opportunity to race a GT3 car. A Ferrari GT3 car 
in the most competitive GT3 series in the world, which is called the Blancpain GT series. So we did a bit of hustling. The, this, this Ferrari team, they needed an amateur-ranked driver in their car, and they needed this amateur-ranked driver to be fast. Um, and that was me. So they, they tested me in Italy, ironically. So they tested me in Italy um, to see how fast I was. And by the time I got back to Cape Town after the test, I'd already received an offer for the season. <laughs> and they needed 150,000 US dollars. But... This was a different level now. I'm now in the most competitive GT series in the world. I'm racing for a team that is um, very high up in the Ferrari corporate sort of world ranks and racing mm -hmm. world. I have something which I can sell to someone, right? And during the, the months where I was still trying to search for a drive, so let's just say after the Italian GT from like December to February, I received, I'm not joking, a message via Instagram from this guy who said he wanted to help me, an American guy. And I was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> like what strings yeah. are attached? What, what's the, what's yeah, the like, come on, man, this is a clown show. Turns out this guy lived in Cape Town. Okay. And he'd heard about me through a friend of a friend who knew that I was struggling a little bit for money for racing. And I kind of, look, I was so pot committed now, I'd like sold my life away and had without any idea what my next race was going to be or anything. I was taking such massive risks. Um, and this guy, he, he called me and he said, come meet me at my house. I went to his house. Outside his house was like, um, I think I counted 11 sports cars, all in white. So he had like a Ferrari 458 Speciale, a McLaren 650, um, a Lamborghini Huracan. He had like one of each thing in each category at the high end. I'm like, okay, this guy's got 10. So... Uh, he agreed to help me and he actually paid for my first test with the Ferrari team. Um, and he paid, he agreed to pay for half my season, more than half my season. So I had, I had the money and I was going to wing it again. I was going to wing it. So I was going to sign a $150,000 contract with like $60,000 in hand, which I did. Gee, I mean, madness. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> Is your dad pulling out his hair during this, during this time? Like, He's lost it. He's lost it. <laughs> He's, he was beside himself. He's yeah. like, David, you have to stop doing this. And at, by this point, I'd stop telling him of the risks I was taking. Mm. <laughs> okay, so then we arrive at the first race, uh, and the car fails. I don't drive. Second race, car fails. I don't drive. Ooh. Third race, car fails. I do very little driving. So I have no results on the board. We spent all the money already, and we're only halfway my sponsor slash investor, he pulls out. Ooh. The team pull out. Everything comes crashing down. I raise enough money to do this, this race called the Spa 24 Hours. So below Lamar is like a bunch of other prestigious races. I find enough money to do the Spa 24 Hour race. And in that race, again, my teammates crash the car. And luckily, I got some driving, but we were nowhere. The car, I mean, if you look on my Instagram, it was a Bentley. The car's completely destroyed before I even get in it. There was a massive risk. I wasn't even going to get in this thing. So then after that, I mean, I had totally lost hope. I promise you now, this is genuinely, up until this point, I knew I could hustle something. I could make a plan. I could sell something. Um, but by now, I had nothing. Again, this is exactly like when I was 23 years old at karting. I had exhausted all avenues of continuing on this path. So I sat at home for like two months, two or three months, just kind of working again. Um, and then this Ferrari team, their name is Kessel, they phoned me and they said, "Your one of your teammates from the Blancpain effort, he wants to race with you and he's going to pay for it. He's going to pay for you to be in the car. So you're going to race for free, basically. And the races are in Hungary and there's another race in Spain. And then we'll see what happens after that. Wow. So we go to Hungary and we win. We go to Spain and we win. And I've reestablished myself out of nowhere. This is the next sort of breakthrough in my career. I reestablished myself and got myself back into the scene by total luck and coincidence and good fortune. And that guy who helped me, his name is Steve. And Steve is still a dear friend of mine. And we, we continue to drive together. And now I coach him. 
uh, he's 65 years old and still showing 40 year olds how to go around racetracks. <laughs> he's awesome. a machine. He's unbelievable. So yeah, then it picked up from there. Then I decided uh, to move to England from South Africa. Um, that's when I moved into my apartment with no furniture. By the way, I thought it was furnished. I thought it. I thought I had furniture. When I got here, I was shocked. I was shocked. <laughs> I like bolted to Ikea to buy um, some bedding. <laughs> it was like, anyway. And then so that was 2017. And in 2017, I, I did the Blancpain series again, but I won everything. I won the endurance championship. I won the sprint championship. I won the overall championship. Um, I won the spa 24 hours. Um, and I won another 12 hour race. I won. I did really, really well. I mean, I just want to slow down. It's amazing. It's one thing to just even finish a race, like you said, because there are going to yeah. be technical issues. And it's another thing to to actually win, to put it together with the team and the other drivers to, to win this stuff. It's just, it's, I, I just want to slow that down. It's really amazing to, to pull that off. It was ridiculous, frankly. Um, and I knew it was, this is like, it kept, we just kept winning. And I was like, David, this doesn't happen in motorsport. You know, mm-hmm. this just doesn't happen. Yeah. But the, Fundamentally, though, my bets were paying off now. I was starting to um, prove myself that I wasn't just a good amateur driver. Like, you could put me in the car, and if you were willing to foot the bill, I would bring you your trophy. You know, and that's what a lot of customers want in this form of racing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look, in 2017, I still had to bring a lot of money to the table, um, and I took my final bank loan at that point, which I'm still paying off. But it was worth it. And at the end, in, by the end of 2017, um, I had become the most, in that year, I was the most successful Ferrari driver in the world. Um, I won more races than any other Ferrari driver. I won more championships. And um, I got invited to this awards evening at the Ferrari race uh, home base and received awards and recognition for everything that I'd achieved. And, and it's completely surreal to me. And, and unrealistic. I still think that, you know, if I told David when he was 18 that this is what you'd have to do to become a professional racing driver, which I managed to achieve this year, I would have said that's impossible. Like, there's just too many things that you have to rely on to go right here for this to, to even be reality. Yeah. Um, but it did actually happen. Well, and it happened after it was taken away a few times. I think that's yes. the, you know, it's one thing when, when it happens when you're 19 or 20. And I think at that age, you're kind of like expect it to happen. It's like, you know, we haven't yes. really gone through that dip that life can be right. really cruel. And yes. uh, so to come back and be in your early 30s and having it, having it happen after it's been like all hope is lost, essentially. Like, yeah, yeah this is never going to happen. And then to find yourself there, I, 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 just, I just can't imagine. It, it was cool. The irony is at this awards evening, I mean, um, trust me, my, my, my path has been non-linear to say the least. At the awards evening, just before I got there, I found out that the team I'd won everything for no longer wanted me in the team because <laughs> <laughs> they, they needed a driver with money and uh. I didn't have any money. <laughs> so they said, Dave, we love you. And I still have a very good relationship with him, but we can't have you in the team anymore. Wow. So even if you're winning, you're not even able, able to be on the team. Yes. It's about the so money. then this, this was my final Hail Mary. Okay. So, man, I was so devastated. And I, I mean, even at the awards evening, I was like, what's the point of winning all these awards if, if you're not rewarded for it in the long term? Like, why isn't anyone recognizing my ability and everything? It's just a life lesson. Like, you can never take that stuff for granted. You always have to keep pushing. And no one's going to give it to you. No one is just going to give you this stuff, you know? So the morning after that awards evening, I had no opportunities on the table. And I read about another Ferrari team randomly, totally randomly, on a, on a GT racing website. The journalist had nothing to do. He interviewed the owner of the Ferrari team and the guy, the owner said, his name is Michele. Michele said, I'm still looking for a driver, a pro driver for my, for my one entry. And I was like, screw it. I need to get hold of Michele. I don't know who this guy is, but I'm going to get hold of him. So I sent a message on their Facebook page and it turns out because now I work with Michele Michele does not answer emails. He does not answer Facebook messages, okay? (laughs) But he answered this one. Wow. 
and it was literally it was a two line. I was like, David, make this concise. Like, you know, like when you're trying to sell it, it's it's a cold email, right? But it was this was a cold Facebook message. I said, uh, Dear Ronaldi Racing, um, I'm David Perrell. I'm an, a silver ranked driver, which is the categorization of driver skill. I mean, I'm I'm looking for a seat. If you have something, you know, I'm available. And he didn't reply. Didn't reply. And then like two or three days later at like 11 p.m. I got an SMS from a German number and I happened to be in Germany at the time. And it's, he said, hello, David, um, I may have a seat for you. Uh, I just need to speak to my gentleman driver. And I replied saying, I'm in Germany. I can come meet you. He says, no, no, don't bother. Anyway, next morning, woke up very early, drove five hours to his workshop and just sat in the waiting room waiting. <laughs> and I waited an hour and he came out. He's like, what the hell are you doing here? I said, I said, I'm coming to meet you. He's like, okay. And he agreed to sit down and talk to me. And we had a discussion about the potential of what I could do for him. And he said, okay, come do a test. And if you do well in the test, you can race with me. Hold on. I just, I just, I just love this because when we want something, we attack, like we just go for it. Yes. And I, 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 without the hesitation, without the per, waiting for permission for it to be okay. I just, I yes. just love that there's a thread in this of, if I want something, I don't hesitate, I attack, I go for it. Yeah. Okay. And it's, look, it's not to say that this didn't happen like one day after the next. There was days of, I did want to give up. 100% I wanted to sure. give up. You know, 100% I didn't feel the fight in me to to keep pushing, to keep trying, to whatever that case may be. But um, Well, where did you do that? How, how, did, you, how did you find the fight when, when it looked bleak? You have to... Um, you have to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's really, it's as basic as that. I tell people who, who have a dream and, and they ask me for advice. I'm like, you have to do something every single day to take one step closer to that dream. And it could be, it could be on some days, it could be something small and relatively insignificant. Like, I don't know, like in my sport, you have to be fit and healthy, you know? So one of those days I could just start eating healthy again or, I could go to the gym. I could go for a light run. That's one small step getting closer to the dream. But then you obviously need to take the bigger steps, which is calling these teams or flying to a country or taking a bet with the money that you don't have on a contract that you shouldn't sign. You know, those are big bets, but you, you have to do something. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the part I want to underline is, is the, the willingness to take these risks, to, to be bold. Um, yeah. Instead, most but of you us need don't... to believe in yourself there. Yeah, and I was I was going to say that most of us don't take risk until we've got a sure thing, or we typically only go for yeah. what we think we can get, instead right, right, of right. I don't know how I'm going to get this, or I, even if I deserve it. It's just I'm going, I'm I'm going for this, and I'll figure it out. I, I, that's the that's the difference in the mentality that I see that holds a lot of guys back is they're just waiting for the green lights, they're waiting for the door to open, somebody to ask them, yes. and I've found that it's way more inspiring when. I see somebody knocking down doors. It's like, yeah, I want that guy on the team. I don't want to yeah. have to go drag somebody out and, you know, give them permission. I want the guy that, that is like, I'm here. I mean, it's a cliche, but you, you have to push. You have to push. And if you believe that what you're doing is right for you, what if you believe that you need to be in that place that someone else occupies, for example, you have to do whatever it takes to, to break down those barriers. And, Sometimes it's going to be humiliating. I mean, in 2015, after I'd signed that contract to race in Italian GT and halfway through the season, I'd run out of money and I started this GoFundMe. I had to go to my friends who up until that point, I was a relatively successful entrepreneur and I had to ask them for money. You know, my, my, my closest friends, it was humiliating. And I probably burned some relationships during that period. I mean, I still have some very, very incredible close friends. But I definitely, you know, I had to eat some of the, the shit, frankly, mm. to, to, to get there. And um, it just depends how badly you want it. You know, the, a lot of drivers who, since I started again in 2015 on a serious level, have been faster than me. And I keep, I keep repeating this, um, but they're not professionals. And despite being quicker than me, um, they're not they haven't gotten to a level that I somehow managed to get to. And it's because they gave up sooner than I did. So another lesson that I have besides taking one foot in front of the other is you have to outlast your competition. And that is true in business too. 
you know, if you really are competing heavily against another company um, and they maybe have a better product, you just have to keep surviving until the point where you, you grind them down and you become the dominant player or you get that lucky break. And by, I mean, I'm using the word luck loosely. Yeah, there's just a ton of preparation and, and then putting yourself in, in yeah. front of an opportunity. That's, that's, a, that's happening a lot here. So the way I explain luck to to people, because they're always like, oh, David, you're very lucky. I was very lucky. I mean, Gianfranco was a a lucky situation, that engineer of mine from the very first GT race. And this this finding out about this this Ferrari drive was lucky. And having this guy send me a DM on Instagram willing to help me was lucky. But luck is showing you a road. It's showing you a path. You you have to identify that that path is a lucky path, and you have to actually walk down it. Luck isn't the the prize at the end of the, you know, it's not the the gold at the end of the rainbow. It's knowing that there is an end to this rainbow, and I have to get there. And if I get there, I will be lucky enough because that's where the gold is lying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so you have to take all those opportunities. And to be honest with you, when you're in the trenches, and you you the more you're learning about your industry, about your whatever it is that you're trying to pursue, you start to get a good feeling for what is worth pursuing, what is not. But you're still going to have those days where you wake up feeling very dark, very down, very lonely, because no one else knows what you're going through. And and you have to say to yourself, put one step in front of the other, what can I do today that will continue to put me on a path towards my dream? And in, in that situation, it was me um, continuing to read the, the GT news websites, despite seeing my friends' names on there because they were getting the, the race seats for the next season. And that hurt like hell because I knew I was as competitive as them, but they were getting the opportunities and you don't want to read that stuff. Mm-hmm. But you ha- I had to read it um, in order to find out that Rinaldi, Michele Rinaldi, had this open seat. That's, that's how it goes. Yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. Steering to the discomfort. Yeah. And that was the sort of last of my truly deep struggles because after that you know we're now on chapter 23 of 24 of the book let's just say in the hypotheticals here after that it went well and i started to really perform i started to prove to this team that i was worth keeping around and eventually halfway through 2018 they started to pay me to race which i didn't expect in 2018 and so now you're on this side of the balance sheet when it comes to <laughs> comes to being a race car driver <laughs> Yeah, I'm still paying off that final bank loan, but sure. Uh, sure. I can afford to live now. And I can't tell you how strange it is because I went through a period where I was more than comfortable. And then I went through this period where I genuinely, and I'm not joking, I had no money to eat. So yeah. I would figure out like, okay, if I buy six eggs and I skip breakfast, I could treat breakfast as lunch. I can have avocado on toast for dinner. And I can do that for five days until I get this next thing. And we wouldn't necessarily think that a guy who's driving Lamborghinis and Ferraris is having a hard time putting yeah. a meal together. Yeah, it's a total dichotomy of, or you know, but that's that's what it took, you know. And I, I mean, the benefit there is you have to be light as a racing driver. So I was losing weight. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not joking. I this true. It's a true story. And I'd eat on the floor. I couldn't afford the table. <laughs> but at least I could get to the racetrack. Okay. You know? And then where is this uh, this voice that's saying Le Mans in your in It's your still ear? there. So I did two races in a series called the European Le Mans series. I did very well with them. Uh, we finished on the podium, which was cool. Um, I proved my pace, but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, they will be competing in Le Mans next year. Whether or not they call me, I will wait and see. But this is the closest I've ever been. Okay. The closest I've ever been. So Still moving in. Still moving in on it. I still think about it every day. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. What would you go back if, uh, you know, that guy that's laying on the ground, he's having a hard time finding a bite to eat and he's giving up hope. I mean, if you could whisper something in his ear, what would you, what would you say? Um, that guy knew what to do. So he, he didn't need any advice, but I, I would have told 21 year old Dave to get on that flight, to go to Europe, work as a mechanic for a karting team, develop some relationships Get the one-off karting race where you can prove you have talent, enough talent, not the ultimate talent, um, and and work hustle hustle from there because I managed to hustle when I was 30 and no one gave me a chance when I was 30. 
They said, no matter how fast you are, you're way too old, brother. Yeah. Um, and now I'm 34 and I am a professional. I proved everyone wrong. And I, I think I was a little bit faster when I was in my twenties. <laughs> so I should have, I should have got on the flight when I was 21. And that, that was the mistake. Okay. Right. I had nothing to lose back then. Whereas mm. when I was 30, I did have a lot to lose. I lost my girlfriend, my, my relationship with my brother. I was meant to marry that girlfriend. Um, the relationship with my brother went through uh, like a, uh, it was like Chernobyl between us. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I repaired a lot of those relationships, but I had more to lose when I was 30 and I took this risk. When I, whereas when I was 21, I mean, you know, yeah. I have my whole life ahead of me. Yeah. Relatively speaking, I still do have my whole life ahead of me now, but, uh, well, I, uh, I love going through your videos. You got such a, a wide variety of stuff. I love how you explain racecraft, and I've learned a ton just going through your stuff. And uh, I love that you really keep in mind that there's somebody watching and somebody wants to learn. You're a great teacher in that way and a great, great. There's, there's lots of guys that are great at what they do and they suck at teaching, you know? So I, I, I enjoy going through your stuff because I learned something from it. I grew up in Sebring. That's my hometown. So oh, man. I, uh, I hope to see you there to in March. That'd be, that'd be great to have Sebring, you Sebring 12-hour. Yeah. So, so I had the bug on the early list. on too. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, I've been reconnecting with that, uh, as of late with the, with the whole simulator culture. So, um, but yeah, I'm awesome, appreciating man. what you do and, and how you do it, man. And, uh, so if you're out there listening, go to David peril.net. That's uh, David peril, P E R E L.net. Thanks so much, David. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. I love telling my story and I hope someone finds some value in it. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.